Hi, welcome to Living Catholic, the weekly webcast from the Diocese of Birmingham in which we engage with Catholic leaders to explore how we can live out our life in Christ faithfully and with joy. I'm Dr. David Andrews, Director of Education and Lifelong Formation of the Diocese. Today I'm speaking with our Bishop, Stephen Reka, to talk about this special year of the parish and the Eucharist. Bishop Reka, welcome to Living Catholic. Thank you, Dr. Andrews. It's so good to be with you today. Well, we're really happy to have you. Um, especially since you have called for this year of the parish in the Eucharist. So uh, tell us something about the, where'd this idea come from for a year of the parish in the Eucharist? Uh, well, uh, about a year ago, um, as we were just going into the pandemic, uh, it was really something that came out of the, the early reflections that I was having when I was in Gaylord at the time. And in fact, the last public mass that I had in Gaylord, I mentioned to the people at the cathedral uh, there, I just said, you know, if I were going to continue to be your bishop, I think from what I'm hearing right now and the desire that people have, that I would probably name this the year of the Eucharist. But I give that to you personally, I said, you can do this on your own. What does the Eucharist mean for you? And how has it been important? Now that we've been away for a period of time, I was hearing reactions from people about how beautiful and how important and how the spiritual hunger had been growing to want to come together to celebrate the Eucharist. Hmm. The priests were celebrating the Eucharist, but the people were watching it more and more on, on, on live stream and on YouTube or on the Sunday broadcast mass on television. So there was this hunger that was emerging. And when people started coming back to Mass, I could see that they had tears in their eyes, some of them, for the first time coming back in person to be in the church, to be uh, participating in, in, in the Mass itself, uh, said something really important to me. And I thought, how beautiful this is, that even in the midst of something really horrible that we're going through, that the desire of the heart still spoke strong. And how important the Eucharist was as a reality, and that there was a connection that was being made that I felt that people could reflect upon during the course of the year and to see, keep asking themselves, why is the Eucharist so central in my life? Why is it so important for my life to be able to live as a Christian? So that was the foundation of it. Then when I came down here, I began to notice how important the parish was as well as a gathering point, as a way for people to express their need for each other as brothers and sisters and the people of God gathered together. And even in the Old Testament, we, we find that Moses had a people. I mean, there were Abraham said that he, that he was going to create a great people, that the people were going to come together. Solomon built the temple, it was a place for the people to gather around, around, uh, around the word. And, you know, that importance was so very, very important that I thought really the parish and the Eucharist are really part of the same, same reality in the sense that the, 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 the parish provides the Eucharist that nourishes people who then are sent out on mission and are sent out to... Uh, to evangelize the world. And um, that was the whole point of Jesus saying to his first disciples, come and then right at the very end, go. <laughs> so 
I really appreciate that. And, and uh, you know, if I hear you correctly, people have an awareness, Catholics have an awareness of the centrality of the Eucharist to their life. Maybe we don't often reflect enough on how the Eucharist is not only communion in the body and blood of Christ, but it's communion in one another, like St. Yeah. Paul says in 1 Corinthians. And, yeah. and we had a lot of occasions over the last year where people would uh, uh, you know, have an opportunity maybe to drive into the parish and receive communion outside in the communion service and then go home. Uh, you do that for a few weeks and you realize, okay, that's not enough. Uh, uh, it's wonderful. It's fantastic. But I need the body of Christ in his people as, just as, as well as I need the body of Christ in Holy Communion. Um, so what, what are your major goals and hopes in our diocese for this year of the parish and the Eucharist? Thank you for that question. Uh, it really, the, the foundation is what we talked about just a few moments ago, hmm. but was to certainly ground what we were doing, not so much in fear, but in hope of what, what was being proposed to us. And so much around us right now is still perpetuating a certain fear among people, but it was really to try to find a way to bring people back together bringing people back into the church where they could see each other and greet each other and pray for one another and be together as a community that Christ has assembled because there's something really beautiful about that. You know, I sometimes use when I talk to the young people, the concept of an orchestra. And, and when I was a young person, I played the French horn and in the band and I loved it. It was, but when, when you're doing a Sousa march, all the French horn has is the pa of the oom. <laughs> you know, it's not very exciting, but when you bring the whole orchestra and the band together, there's a there's a new sound that's being created that's symphonic that is really powerful in the life of people, I think. So uh, part of the goal was to get people back so that we could create and reorganize the symphony, in a sense, the symphonic sound of praise and worship and, and adoration that comes from a people that has been gathered together. And so it's sort of the, we identify, of course, the council identified the liturgy and especially the Eucharist as a source and summit of the Christian life. It's what the parish does and should do best. And so part of that is just reorganizing that and rethinking about what does this all mean for us? Uh, and so the major goal was to put that question in mind and to say, what is my intention how do I live my life with a purpose and reason? And why is the parish and the Eucharist so very, very important for me that I'm coming and participating in my life because my desire is to be with these people. So that was sort of the basis of uh, the major goals that I hope to achieve is that just that we can come back together, maybe not in the old way, maybe not in a new way, but maybe in a better way uh, that we've come with a new purpose, and intention. So I, I, I feel like I hear at least two major points that you're making. One it comes to us from the letter to the Hebrews, do not neglect the assembling of yourselves together, right? And, and the other one is, of course, the council's emphasis on the Eucharist as the source and the summit of the Christian life. Sure. Let, me, let me pivot to that second point for a minute. We've heard that phrase many times since the council. What, what yeah. does that mean to you, Bishop Reka, that the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life? I think if, if we take a look at what it means to me, uh, and that's that's a very, very good point, I think it's it, it, it reflects 
what we do best as a Christian people. So um, we come together, saints and sinners, weeds and wheat, we're all there together to hear God's word. Um, but it is, uh, it has a certain center and purpose of my life, just as Christ is the center of all life and the goal of all life. And it, it captures that very nature of who Christ is for me. One that I can hear and listen to God's words and good news being addressed to me. And secondly, that I'm nourished by it. Um, so the Eucharist as being the source is the font of from which that grace comes by which I am enlivened as a Christian person. And uh, it is the goal to which I tend in order to become more conformed. And I'm finding this word using, used more and more in some of the prayers that we have for our sacraments, that we are conforming ourselves more and more to Christ. Um, I, I think uh, the Eucharist for me is just that very, very center uh, of who we are. And as a people, we become truly ourselves when we are part of that. So uh, approaching the Eucharist as, a, as the primary instrument that God gives us to help us be transformed into Christ's likeness and image, what, what should a Catholic bring in their interior life, in their imagination, in their prayer, in their disposition to make that effective? Well, I think one is a desire that you desire uh, what, uh, what God is going to open up to you or Christ is going to open up to you during that particular moment and perhaps lead you in a particular direction. And the other is to be open to the wonder and the surprise of what God can do in our life. Hmm. Uh, because sometimes people come to church with one intention and something has happened and they go back completely changed or completely different. And don't we see that in the, in the life of, the, of those who encountered Christ in the gospel, like the woman at the well or, or Zacchaeus, who maybe came with a certain desire uh, desire for Zacchaeus to see Christ, but completely changes at the end of, 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 the, of the experience itself. And Jesus says, I'm going to come and stay at your place today. So um, I think opening that up or, or what people come with one hope can obviously be transformed into something very, very different when Christ becomes involved. And uh, for me, that's, that's happened on numerous occasions and people that I've met have told me of things that have happened during mass that have completely changed them. And I, I would hope that that would be part of the experience itself. That that's wonderful. And I don't know that I've ever thought of that before, although I've experienced it, you come to mass with one intention, one problem that you think is the most salient thing in your life that you need yeah. solved. And then you don't actually yeah. get a solution to your problem. God answers a problem that you didn't know you had. And right. the other one seems to fade in significance. That's beautiful. That's right. um, let me pivot a second from the Eucharist to the parish. Uh, I know, speaking to you privately, you've mentioned a couple of times that this recent Vatican document on the pastoral conversion of the parish is very important to you. You really found a lot of helpful material in there. When I went back and reread that document, preparing for this interview, one of the things that struck me is the emphasis of the document on moving beyond a kind of strictly territorial conception of the parish's purview of its, of its ministry, really broadening the scope and vision of parish life to be more evangelistic and missionary and, and moving out into the world, maybe even beyond their geographic parish boundaries. How would you like to see that vision of parish reform implemented in the Diocese of Birmingham? 
thank you, uh, Dr. Andrews, for that question. It's a wonderful question, and it's something that uh, the priests uh, at the most recent meeting of the consultors were, were talking about as a way to perhaps do a study of where we are in the diocese. And in, in light of uh, the things that have happened in the past, say, 10, 15 years of where we are, both in terms of deployment of, of clergy, but also uh, the fact that the, the texture and the complexity of, of uh, parish life has, has changed as well. Uh, I think what we're finding is, for example, in the Diocese of Birmingham, we've got an increasing number of Hispanic uh, hmm. parishes or, or component in, in ministry. And, and so that has got to be reflected in some way in how we do ministry as well. Uh, many of our parishes are expanding. Some are not so. Uh, but it's like, what, how do we right size what we are doing in terms of the parishes that we have, the units that we have? Uh, some talk about pastoral regions. Perhaps we can do some things in clustered ways more effectively than we can as an individual parish. Some parishes are so large, they'll manage themselves quite fine. But there are others that if they cluster together, they can do more things and have more um, opportunities available to them. If, if they are uh, enabling, um, uh, well, sharing the resources, shall we say, uh, of, of what can possibly be done. So it, we also know that there's a mobility among people today. In, in, in days of old, uh, uh, you went to where your territorial parish was, that was your parish. Or you went to your personal parish, if you belong to an Irish parish or an Italian parish or German parish. Today, that's, uh, that has kind of fallen by the wayside in many respects. People get in their cars and they go where they feel that they are most welcomed or, or, or nourished, I think. Uh, and yet there's still a need for some of the administrative responsibilities of a territorial parish because it identifies the boundaries uh, of the pastoral care that the pastor has to provide for and the nursing homes and the prisons and everything else that are within its jurisdiction to make sure that they are tended to. Um, but in terms of the, the, the mobility has been a real challenge that, that we are trying to understand and to try to welcome. And especially those, as we say, as, a, as, as Pope Francis keeps talking about too, about the, that we are a church that just doesn't stay here, but we go out. We go out to the various peripheries, the, the real peripheries and the ex existential peripheries of life. So we don't serve only those who come to us but that our witness extends to all who are within that parish uh, boundary and in that parish life. So, you know, that, that's, that's something that we, we, I think we have to explore more critically in what we do. You know, another emphasis of that Vatican document was on the role that lay people have to play in expressing the missionary vision of the church. And that's another difference, of course, over the last 50 years or so, um, there are just fewer clergy to go around to engage in some of those ministries, and and lay people, of course, are becoming more aware of their own vocation. We're not just we're not just meeting a a functional need, but they actually have a call to share they their do. life in Christ with other people. Uh, what do you think are the are the barriers or the impediments to lay people realizing this vocation and and having a confidence that you know you don't have to have a degree in theology or know the whole catechism to share your life in Christ with your neighbor? 
No, it's, and some perhaps feel that uh, they're unworthy to participate or feel that it's only for those with degrees or those who have been highly trained, as I sometimes say, that they've had, you know, somehow that, that even the early, early disciples who gathered around Christ, you know, didn't have high degrees either uh, or professional credentials or, or attend the seven habits of highly successful disciples. And, but I think they had what they had was the experience of that man that suddenly changed them into these people that were filled with great zeal and tenacity and energy to say, I know this man and this man has changed my life. Now, how do we do that within our parish communities? And, and people plug in in different ways. There are some who are more comfortable teaching in a, in a, in a class or accompanying young people. There are others who, who like to visit uh, the homebound. There are others who are part of in, in our diocese, which I think does great work with the, with the Center for Concern when we have a, a, a tragedy that has occurred um, because of weather, for example, and uh, people have reached out and have gone out to where, where the hurt is and the Center for Concern and some people have been very touched and moved by that. I've got, I've, I, meet, I meet with some people or I've met with some people from some of our parishes who prepare sack lunches who come downtown Birmingham here during the lunchtime and distribute them to the, home, to the homeless. So, I mean, there are, there, there are small things that people can do. Some people can even take uh, a, uh, the, the prayer chain that people have at churches can even be a source of, of reaching out and, and vitality among lay people. Say, I'm going to call somebody from the parish or check up on them. Hmm. Uh, that's, a great, that's a great activity. They might not be doing the, the, the world-shaking things, but they are doing this one thing that has changed the life of someone that said someone cared today. That's beautiful. Well, we have a saint of, of that spirituality, right? Therese of Lisieux and her little yeah. way, right? The little way, the little things that I do in life that make a difference. Um, Bishop, a lot of people in Birmingham are still getting to know you. I thought <laughs> if we're talking about parish life, uh, you know, it occurs to me that before you were a bishop, you were a parish priest. Before that, you were a layman in a parish. Maybe yeah. you'd like to share something of your own experience of parish life and your vocation to priesthood and the episcopacy. Uh, when I was first ordained a priest back in 1978, I was assigned to a parish. Um, actually, it was a huge parish uh, as, as part of the diaconate experience. Uh, I ended up uh, ordained partway through that year and stayed on as, as the third associate in the parish. There were four priests in the parish then. And we had a convent of, of eight sisters and all kinds of activities going on at the parish in Flint, Michigan. Um, but there was one group that didn't have a priest that attended to it. And so I began, began to work uh, learning sign language to work with the deaf and the hearing impaired. So that became my, my specialty or niche in the ministry. And, and partway through that year, then uh, the bishop called me down to his office and said, I'd like to make you the chaplain for the deaf. Well, it was right off after the get-go. So I had my own parish, small little community right from the get-go for the first 10 years of working with the deaf and the hearing impaired, in addition to doing parish work in various places, in suburban parishes in Flint, and then in a rural community uh, between Flint and, and St. John's. And so it was uh, very beautiful for me to have these experiences of being involved in parish life uh, and the specialized ministry with the deaf and the hearing impaired. Um, that 
really touched me a great deal and helped, I think, to form those early days of being attentive to those whom I had served and to be able to develop communities and work with communities that would be ministering to um, those in need, but also those on the broad sense of, of who we had to take care of. Uh, I was very, I enjoyed parish life immensely. And uh, most of my parish experiences outside of that very first one were very small parishes. Uh, I came back, I think from Rome, uh, I was working in the chancery in the, in the tribunal for a couple of years as well. Um, and that as well, uh, they assigned me to the smallest parish in the diocese at the time. So I had, I don't know, was it 50 or 75 families or something like that, as well as a little tiny, uh, not tiny, but a small uh, private college called Olivet College in, in Michigan uh, that the parish was responsible for. So Sunday night we'd go over for, for mass and confessions and uh, be involved on that level as well. Now, before your vocation to the priesthood, you also were involved as a layman in the music ministry of parishes, I, weren't you? I was, even in high school, yeah. I was really unusual in that sense. I was the parish musician when I was in 10th grade, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade. Uh, we had our choir, of course. And uh, But what was so astonishing about that is um, being able, uh, the musician was expected to be at mass every morning, the seven o'clock and eight o'clock mass, two masses uh, that I would play uh, and sing and then uh, go to school, the public high school. They allowed me to arrive late to first period so I could do that. <laughs> so it was, I don't know if you could do it today, but it certainly was allowed back in those days. Um, there was a certain flexibility, I think, for, for people back then. And, and that grounded me, I think, just in the life of the parish itself, that you'd see people coming and going and the activity of the parish. Whether it was that or weddings or funeral, getting excused to, to play a funeral, and sing a funeral, um, or uh, the Friday night stations of the cross during Lent. So got to know people. You know, I'm sure you know, but uh, Pope Benedict is a musician and he likes to play the piano. And yeah. uh, I remember seeing a video of him one time uh, ripping off some ragtime piano yes. tunes. And uh, <laughs> I think maybe one day we can get you to rip off some Scott Joplin on the French horn. Hey, there you go, there you go, yeah. We'll, we'll put it up on the video. Everybody would love oh, to see that'd it. That'd be great, wouldn't it? Um, so, you know, I, I know you've done a lot of travel outside the country, and uh, you've mentioned to us in the Chancery that you've been impressed by uh, parish life that you've seen in other places, and, and you've gained some insights about things that you thought American Catholics could benefit from, from knowing. I wonder if you would share oh, some yeah. of those insights that you've seen in other, other countries. I know Latin America has impressed you a lot with the way they handle parish life. Oh, uh, we did. Uh, that was a very interesting experience just a couple of years ago in Nicaragua. The Diocese of Gaylord was twinned with the Diocese of Matagalpa in Nicaragua. And a group of us did go down um, for the experience there. And uh, Bishop Alvarez, Bishop Rolando, would take us up. He did a parish visitation up and into the mountainous area of, of the diocese, a parish that he hadn't quite been to yet. And so he took me along and, and the group that accompanied me. And we went up into the mountainous area and about a half a mile or so from the church or from the town, we were met already by a group from the parish who had signs welcoming us. And then eventually as we walked with them toward the town and the village, a band started gathering and 
And then some people with firecrackers, you know, started showing, throwing off the firecrackers to, to welcome us. Um, I don't think I've ever had that experience in Birmingham or, uh, <laughs> or in Gaylord when I went to visit a country. Um, but it was very unique, I would say. Uh, I'm not suggesting that we move in that direction, but it certainly was a sign of their great hospitality uh, for the parish that the parish wanted to give to those who were visiting. Um, and in other countries as well, I think uh, there were moments that, that really touched me, both in terms of the singing, both in terms of the number of people that were welcoming. And my cousins took me to a parish in, in just outside of Krakow where they live. And it was, it was just utterly amazing to me because I, I they allowed me to kind of celebrate the mass, which was very beautiful. Sunday mass, there were two floors uh, packed with people. And every server who showed up in the sacristy, they said, get dressed up, get dressed up. There were 18 servers for the, for the mass you know, all processing in from young to old and the younger ones looked after the young, older ones looked after the younger ones and, and they all participated in some way in a very beautiful way that just made everybody really proud to be part of that parish life. So it wasn't like, well, you're the only two scheduled, well, you're not scheduled today so you can't serve. And I thought, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense when people have that desire and that energy, you want to incorporate them and be involved because they're obviously expressing something of saying, I want to be part of this. And so how is it that we can move and, and be that welcoming force to welcome people into doing what we can? Uh, that, that, that struck me particularly in, in, in that parish. So that's, that's beautiful. Yeah. Um, you know, I know something else that's been very important in your pastoral ministry is uh, uh, the, uh, the teaching of uh, Father Luigi Giussani and the communion yeah. and liberation apostolate that he began. I, I wonder if you could maybe share some insights you gained from, from communion and liberation that you think would be applicable for our own year of the parish in the Eucharist. Yeah, thanks for asking the question. I think, you know, 20, it was about 20 years ago when I was in Rome as the superior at the Casa that I was receiving their, their, their magazine, their monthly magazine called Traces. Why it came to me, I don't know. Maybe it was just because they were sending it out. And that's when it, it first came on my radar. I knew nothing about the movement before then. And I only knew just a little bit about it. And then the second piece came when I would watch uh, the evening news uh, when I lived there, it came on uh, at eight o'clock at night, the national news, um, the Italian national news. And in, in late August, there was a meeting that occurred every year in Rimini. It was just called meeting, uh, meeting of friends. And the evening news, the national news would devote 10, 15, 20 minutes to what had occurred at meeting every year. And they talk about this big, huge Catholic gathering. And then you'd hear the numbers of people that were involved. It was like 600, 700, 800,000 people. It's like, why is this? thing happening that we know nothing about. And, um, and so I, it piqued my curiosity as something of that magnitude would. And, sure. you know, and, and of course, then they would have Pope John Paul give a talk there sometimes and Pope Benedict has spoken there. And so, I mean, you'd, 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 you'd raise your curiosity about what is this thing? And then as I began to find out more and more uh, about the founder and what he had done, and the, the, the foundational texts that, that uh, were inspiring to people and how he got to that particular point, 
then I began to read those books and become more fascinated by the charism that he was proposing. But as you say, during this year of the parish and the Eucharist, I think what is important that comes from the, and is drawn from the movement is the fact that the movement emphasizes very, very much the incarnation of Christ. And uh, today that we're doing the taping happens to be the Annunciation. Hmm. Uh, and so the incarnation is extremely important on this day because it's the word becomes flesh and dwells among us, dwells among us, lives with us, is part of us. And that reality of Christ being with us, really, truly, genuinely present with us, is something that should not be forgotten, that just doesn't live in a virtual world somewhere. God didn't say and do the virtual thing and just say, well, I'm going to send you a text message. He sent his son. He sent his son. And on this day, you know, if you go to Nazareth, you can see the place, you know, the ver verbum carum, carum factum est, and it says hic, hic ver verbum carum factum est, here a literal place here. And in our life, we have a lot of those here's that are part of that. Our parish communities are the altars where Christ is present here. Uh, in our hearts that we take when we receive the Eucharist, we can say Christ is present here. When we are reaching out in our charity in the name of Christ, Christ is present here. The hick, hick is everywhere, isn't it? But it is a specific place, and it is recognizable, and it is truly there. Uh, but it is also something that is a, that we are able to respond to, that I'm able to respond to as a person to person. Christ came for me, and I am here for the sake of Christ and for his mission. Beautiful. That incarnation piece is replicated not in a virtual way, virtual way is helping us to get through the tunnel, as Pope Francis says, but it isn't the end. Uh, but it is the reality that our parishes and the Eucharist create here. Uh, and so for that reason, uh, we try to do this to remind ourselves of the importance of the incarnation. Christ became word here. You know, while you were talking, I remembered a passage from St. Bonaventure's work on the mind's journey to God. Oh, where he, he is, I love that text. And he says, the world is a ladder ascending to God, mm -hmm. but we don't have eyes to recognize it. We don't no. see it and no. until the grace of God comes and transforms us. And I, I, I love what you did with that, the incarnation taking place at a concrete time and place in the Holy Land, but also to remember that that happens in our own life. That's beautiful. Thank you. Yes. Um, so Bishop, in our last few minutes, I wonder, are there any sort of concrete things that you would like parishioners in Birmingham to do or parishes to do for the year of the parish and the Eucharist? I would say uh, to stay close to your parishes, cherish the Eucharist. It feeds us. Christ gives us his body and blood for our salvation. So uh, my hope uh, in all of this is that we keep our eyes fixed on Christ in all things. And certainly with the inspiration of St. Joseph, whose year this is also dedicated to, uh, 
that we may be protected on this journey as well as he protected the Holy Family um, to keep us safe. And that, I think, is sort of the sum of, of everything, to stay close to Christ in the Eucharist. And, and that will continue to amaze us in astonishing ways. Beautiful. Bishop, thank you. I wonder if we, as we close, if you'd be willing to give us your blessing. Uh, sure. Thank you. I'd be very honored to. Uh, the Lord be with you. With your spirit. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Bishop Reka, thank you so much for being with us today. It was a great pleasure to be with you, Dr. Anders. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Oh, my producer is reminding me. Um, thanks for joining us today for Living Catholic. In our next episode, I'll speak with Dr. Joshua Miller, a Catholic leader in the field of narrative-based motivational assessment, author and speaker, to discuss how discovering your personal vocation is a means to church renewal. If you enjoy our show, subscribe to us on YouTube or using your favorite podcast app. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating or review. Finally, please recommend us to friends and family. We'd love to continue speaking with you in this year focused on encountering Christ in our parish and in the Eucharist.